Hi, this is Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Register of Deeds. And I'm Carly Malcolm, lead for North Carolina Fellow for Guilford County from the UNC School of Government. And welcome to the Good Grief Podcast. Have you ever lost a loved one and had to figure out what to do? Have you ever felt alone and overwhelmed? Did it make you wonder why on earth this is all so complicated? In this podcast series, we bring together community partners to talk unapologetically about issues of death and dying. We answer questions about funerals, hospice, estates, and more to give our listeners the knowledge they need to make decisions for themselves and their loved ones. We want everyone in Guilford County to know that they're supported, that we live in a community where we cannot only live and live well, but when we die, we can also die well because we care. So we thank you for joining us for the Good Grief Podcast and for taking this step to be better prepared for end-of-life challenges. Welcome to the Good Grief Podcast, and I'm Jeff Thigpen, Guilford County Registry of Deeds, and I'm joined with Carly Malcolm, who is our NC Lead Fellow from the North Carolina Institute of Government working on special projects, which means she is like a real crackerjack, and she has got a lot of good questions today because we have a great couple with us here today, David and Catherine Sevier. Um, want to welcome you both here to the podcast. And, you know, like the Register of Deeds, not a lot of people know what I do until they need something really important, like a death certificate or, you know, birth of a child, marriage, buy a home. I think in the advanced care planning world, you two, whether you know it or not, are like a power couple. And what I mean by that is you all have been at the forefront over the last five to 10 years of some really interesting changes in North Carolina. And I'm grateful to have you both here today because I know you have a lot of good information. And while I say you're a power couple, I will uh, refer to Brody that when I raised that I was uh, Brody, the producer of this program, I was telling that you guys were going to be here today. And uh, he said uh, he kind of got quiet and he kind of gave what I would consider the highest compliment is that you all are just plain good people. So, and to me, that covers along with a lot that we'll cover today. That's all I really need to know. So again, thank you for being here. And first of all, I just want to throw out, just tell me your backgrounds. I know individually, you know, you can let me know, David, I think you're a Navy commander and Catherine, you're a doctor and, and I think, you know, how y'all met and everything. So just so we can all get to know you a little better. You want to start with David? Sure. Well, Catherine and I met uh, about 12 years ago uh, up in Washington, D.C., and we were both single at the time and uh, had a date, and we uh, decided uh, pretty quickly that we, we kind of liked each other. So um, it progressed from there, and uh, about nine months later, we got married. So it was pretty exciting. She was working at the American Diabetes Association, and I was heading a uh, a commission on the future for the Department of Veterans Affairs Health System. Ah, uh, so what what happened was you saw Catherine in that vintage nurse sweatshirt that I see her wearing on Twitter when she gives updates, and that probably got your eye, right? Well, it certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> it didn't hurt. <laughs> Catherine, tell me a little bit about your background. Before I met this gentleman, I was engaged in mostly healthcare-related things. Uh, I am a nurse, and I have a doctorate in public health. I started out in the cancer world at the beginning of my career and did a master's thesis on care of people who were dying when I was in my 20s and have carried that work with me now for 
four decades. So it has been a labor of love, I think, more than anything else. And it was a realization as a young nurse that people really need to talk to each other and they need to share with one another what their wishes are, what their feelings are, and what their fears are. And it was that that really got me interested in this whole area. And it continues to be my interest today. Well, and I, and I was really grateful to get the connection to both of you. Uh, we've met a couple times over the past year and just a wealth of information and perspective about why in terms of not only advanced care planning, but communication, control, the ability as a f- to have family-centered ways and community-centered ways to deal with aging and illness in a way that has real integrity. And I've appreciated that perspective, I think, that you bring to this work, which kind of brings us into advanced care planning. And what's the kind of the state of that in North Carolina right now in terms of the overall need of it or within the United States? I know, David, when we met earlier, you shared some real interesting numbers about the number of people who are or are not prepared around advanced care planning. Um, everybody thinks it's important and the implications of when we aren't prepared. And as a result of that, bringing it into North Carolina, kind of what are some of the main issues that you see? Sure. Well, statistically, about 35 to 38 percent of the American uh, population of adults have advanced care plans of some sort or another. So that is not bad. But we uh, also realize that number hasn't changed dramatically over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. And so that's not a good thing. You asked about North Carolina. Uh, Here in North Carolina, we have traditionally been on the lower number of that because of a couple of things. One is that a legislated requirement for getting an advanced directive is that an individual, once they've decided they're going to do it, they have to get two unrelated witnesses and a notary to uh, sign those documents And then they have to make them available to their health system. And so that's not been an easy uh, road to move forward on. So it's it's caused some challenges here in North Carolina. And we're we're working to to try to make a difference in that. Yeah. So in North Carolina, we have an aging population. Uh, It's aging rapidly. A lot of folks, whether or not you're aging or not, we're unprepared in a lot of cases to talk about our wishes. Catherine, as a nurse with a background in nursing, how do you see... The implications of of not being prepared in terms of dealing with issues of aging and or serious illness or into life care. Well, I was going to say, I I like to back it up and say that none of us know when we're going to walk outside and get hit by the 52 bus. (laughs) So um, we, we think of needing advanced care plans when we're older, but the reality is that something could happen to any of us where we weren't able to speak for ourselves. And so think of a a young couple, and and I've had, I've spent most of my career in the cancer world, and I took care of many young people who were living with a fatal form of cancer that were at close to the end of their lives, who had young children, who had spouses, who had businesses they were still operating, and they needed to have their affairs in order. And they certainly needed to help their families make that transition from when I can't speak for myself anymore, here's what I want you to do. And 
One of the things that I realized often was it wasn't so much that as a nurse that I had a a judgment or a value of what they were going to do. It's that I wanted them to know what they wanted and to have shared that with their family members because the peace that you have is very different when you've made your wishes known and the peace that your family has after you're gone is immeasurably different. Yeah. So, David, there was the the idea of, in the Medicare system, the amount of money that is spent in the last year and in the last last month. And I remember that conversation because, Catherine, you chimed in and said, that's just the financial cost. What you're raising is there is an emotional cost. There is a stress that comes along in those situations. If we had a better system in place, could be incredibly helpful. Absolutely. And the other thing that unless your family's different than mine, we're not monolithic. So two kids can have very different opinions about what they want to happen to mom or dad. So the other thing that you want to think about is how do we get our family singing out of the same hymn book, so to speak, rather than putting them in the position where they're having to negotiate their differences by your bedside. Yeah. And we'll talk about Mind My Health, which I think is really helpful in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering if you all would talk a bit about the Serious Illness Task Force that you have with the North Carolina Institute of Medicine and the work you're doing there. Sure. I'll start off and I'll let Catherine uh, talk about it a bit as well. About two years ago, the uh, North Carolina Institute of Medicine said that they were going to put together a task force on serious illness care. Now, serious illness, we defined it in the task force as basically you wouldn't be surprised if somebody were to pass away within the next 12 months. So that's what defines a serious illness is that somebody uh, is getting close to the end of life. So the task force was focused on how we in the state of North Carolina can provide better care for individuals when they get to that point and prepare for that as a state both from the uh the federal uh, the the state and the and the private side of of things and and looking at advanced care planning looking at care provision. So uh, we, we looked at hospice care and palliative care and a number of things. And uh, and so we studied that for a, a year. Yeah. And, and as we studied it, what we asked is, what do we need to do in North Carolina to give people the best possible care, regardless of where in the state they lived and what their circumstances were financially? So we believe that there are certain things that people are going to want and need regardless of who they are. And there are things like symptom management, good medical treatment for whatever their terminal illness is, and also back to where we were a few minutes ago, that need to really communicate and be prepared for what's going to happen downstream. So We ended up with the task force with 33 recommendations. They covered everything from changing some legislation around advanced care planning to encouraging the legislature to provide broadband and telehealth Mm. to how do we train new workforce, particularly healthcare workers, to be able to care for people who are seriously ill. So the recommendations cover everything from clinical care to the business of the family to wishes and to things that government can do to facilitate all of this. The first major recommendation was pull together people who care about this in North Carolina 
form a coalition and then go about making sure these recommendations actually occur and get implemented. So in February of this year, the coalition came together. It is now the Serious Illness Coalition that is charged with really driving a number of those recommendations to completion. Right. And so could you talk a little more about the work that you're doing with the coalition, what you all are accomplishing? We have pulled together since February about 133 people who represent 75 different organizations, uh, such as the the large health systems, uh, Duke and UNC and and Cone, for instance. Uh, We've got the uh, Bar Association, the Medical Society, the AARP. People who are interested in this whole area of serious illness have come together And uh, we have weekly meetings. Uh, Every Friday morning, we interview somebody who uh, has an interesting story, an anecdote that they want to share. And then we have monthly meetings with the entire coalition. And we're really focused on getting those recommendations that Catherine mentioned. There's 33 overall. There's 13 priority recommendations. And we're working to get those uh, accomplished in the state. We're going to be talking to the General Assembly. We have already, but we're going to be uh, giving them some real talking points in the in the spring of next year. Mm. Um, and Catherine, I'll chime in. Now, you're, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the introduction, you're the president of North Carolina AARP, right? I am. Been in that role since when? Um, is this? this is my fourth year. Your fourth year? Okay. Yes. And one of the things I haven't talked to you about, it's called the North Carolina Campaign for Future of Nursing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So the North Carolina Campaign for the Future of Nursing is about 10 years old now. It was formed as a marriage between AARP and the nursing community through Robert Wood Johnson. And the idea is that nurses in particular can be community leaders who can help really move conversations, quality of care, and prevention out into the community. So here in North Carolina, our campaign has done things like normalize all of the educational requirements to move people in the workforce to higher levels of functioning faster. So we developed a ribbon program with the community college system that now goes through the doctoral level at UNC or Duke. And the other things that we're taking on now are how do we help communities become age-friendly? So how do we move a community to where there's transportation to get medicines, where there are curb cuts. So if you're in a wheelchair or if you're young and you're pushing a stroller, you can get across the street. And so we're we're focusing on very targeted things. And in fact, very soon, it looks like we're going to be afforded a Robert Wood Johnson grant for this community to look at some of the work that we're trying to do in equity and diversity. Uh, great. Yeah. And you are on a task force on health equity as well. Absolutely. Uh, I'm kind of jumping the gun here. We've got a number of questions, but I think that was a part of that work. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, Task Force on Health Equity? I think the governor created that uh, task force. Well, this summer, as as we've all known, there's just been a lot of unrest. And, And very soon after the George Floyd tragedy came to Governor Cooper decided or put together a group and he said, we really need to address this directly, this whole area of equity, economic equity, environmental equity, health equity. 
And so he went out to the state and looked and invited people to come in and bring some expertise around those issues. And I'm on the Health Access Committee, which is the working group, which is really asking similar questions to what we're doing with the uh, coalition. And that is, how do we make certain that all people have access to health, to care, to the things that they need? And certainly, we know in the state there is a lot of challenge with both diversity Mm -hmm. in that area and also geography, because what we have available in one community is not what we have in another. So we're starting to tackle all that. We've only met twice so far, but we've been given a charge of be bold, be direct, come up with quick solutions for the things that we can solve right now, and then look longer term for things that are going to take more work. So things like telemedicine and broadband are things that pop up right away. Yeah, telemedicine, broadband, that urban-rural dynamic. I grew up in a rural county. And, uh, you know, I'm living in Guilford County now, but those are huge issues as it relates to to healthcare access and the ability, because there have been historic health issues that have been endemic to the, for example, to the African-American community. And it, it's one of those things that when we're in this moment of COVID, mm-hmm. it exacerbates it and brings it out even more. And we begin to see it in ways that, that hopefully with the task force and their recommendations, the serious illness task force and things like that, there can be these conversations that can lead to action with the General Assembly to really help not only lay the technology infrastructure, but a real strategy to help uh, bridge those gaps in uh, access and services. Well, there's so many things I could say about that. The one thing I don't want to forget, because it's my new mantra, is get your flu shot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten my flu shot yet, but I will. Get your flu shot. I've promised people the two things I will say repeatedly for the next 49 days are vote and get your flu shot. So I will say that three or four times before we're out of here. (laughs) Nursing homes. Talk to us about nursing homes. That's a real passion of yours, and you've spent some real time on it. Sure. Well, AARP nationally and here in the state has been very concerned about what has happened in congregate living during the COVID epidemic. And one of the things that we've been very worried about is how do we make sure that people that are in nursing homes and unable to communicate with their family and friends and have visitation, how do we make sure that their wishes are known during this time? And how do we make certain that we find creative ways to keep the communications going between families, patients, and the healthcare providers? So for us in North Carolina, what we've struggled with is, first of all, getting enough testing, which we now are finally to the point where we're testing on a regular basis, and we're testing the healthcare workers, who are the people who oftentimes are the ones that bring COVID into a a congregate living facility, not intentionally, but because they're out in the world and then going in. And then how do we make sure that if I'm the daughter spouse of someone in a nursing home that I'm able to to really keep relationships going because one of the things that we know is social isolation is devastating to all of us, but particularly to people who are in a congregate situation without any of their families there. So we're doing a lot of advocacy work around that, working with DHHS, with other community organizations, and, and really trying to address how we go into the fall when the weather changes mm. and outside visitation isn't possible. What are we? How are we going to to meet those needs? Yeah, when we were tracking uh, COVID deaths, 
when you look at, at least in Guilford County, those within late 60s, early 70s, on the 90s in nursing homes, uh, it was had an incredible impact. And so I appreciate the fact that you take that seriously and, and really are looking at how we can improve care for people, you know, one of our most vulnerable populations. Well, and the sad fact about this is that while only 13% of the COVID cases in North Carolina are in people over 65, 80% of the deaths yeah. are. So exactly. that that tells you the magnitude of the, the challenge we're facing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to, I think Carly was going to ask about the health information exchanges, and that will probably lay a, a foundation for getting into my, my health, which will be incredibly important for us to discuss. So. Yeah. So back in 2015, the General Assembly created the health information exchanges. So can you talk about what that is and why it's important? Yeah, we uh, we had the executive director of the North Carolina Health Exchange Authority, uh, Christy Burris, with us on the uh, Serious Illness Task Force. Uh, she was one of the 65 professionals that were on that task force. And so we got to know a lot about what uh, the General Assembly had done back in 2015 and, and how uh, the mandate and and the funding for this uh, health information exchange came together at that point. North Carolina has led the nation in putting together a a funded mandated health information exchange. Call it a uh, a kind of internet for qualified information, very secure across the health uh, entities throughout the state. And so it is uh, actually now in thousands of different locations with large health systems, with clinics. Uh, it's going to nursing homes uh, it currently. And uh, it's, it's a means to transmit information from electronic health records of people to more broad information. So there's a huge amount of data that is available from one system to another. And we're very interested in it because we are on the verge of being able to move an advanced care uh, plan, an an advanced directive that somebody fills out, to the information exchange to then be made available whenever and wherever somebody shows up and, and it's needed. So as a nurse, what does that mean? Well, it means that you have (laughs) your data. You have the person's voice at the moment that you need it. Think about an emergency room when someone is brought in uh, via ambulance. They've been separated from their families and they can't speak. Mm. Being able to find them immediately and see what it is they have specified and asked to be done takes a lot of the pressure that the healthcare system feels to do the right thing for the person. Because anybody who's providing care in an emergency room or in a hospital wants to feel that they are honoring that person's wishes. But without that knowledge, then we're in a situation where it defers to our best judgment. And we're pretty much required to do everything to try to save that person's life even if they've made the decision that they don't want that. So having that information is going to be tremendously important. And having it, whether you're at home where your health care provider is close by, or if you happen to have gone to the mountains for the weekend or the beach, or you're somewhere where you haven't been before, being able to find you 
wherever you are, is something that we all would like. There's sometimes we don't want to be found, but when it comes to expressing our wishes, we need to be found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, how does the platform of Mind My Health fit into all of that? Let me just mention how Mind My Health came about and, and, and what that is. About four years ago, we were asked to uh, contact the Duke Endowment. Now, the Duke Endowment is a foundation that was established by the Duke family a number of years ago, and it's a, it's a large foundation. And they uh, have different areas that they're looking at, one of which is health. And so uh, we approached them and said that we had this idea for developing an online platform to enable people, as we said and, and do say today, to own their health and plan for care in advance. That is our tagline. And it's really a, a, an approach that's not just focused on end of life, but broader than that. So we we asked the Duke Endowment if they were interested. Little did we know that they had been studying this for some time and had a a noted uh, physician, Dr. Atul Gawande, having spoken to them just uh, a couple of months before. And uh, and they basically said, well, how soon can you uh, get to work on this? Well, we were flabbergasted. And uh, they actually gave us uh, about a million dollars to establish this online platform. We since called it Mind My Health for reasons that are probably obvious, uh, so that people have the ability to own their health and plan for care in advance. So they can go on to the, the, the website, uh, mindmyhealth.org, and it's a nonprofit entity, and so there's no cost associated with it. They can uh, create their advanced directives there, and then they can upload them to the cloud in a secure uh, space. And then, as I mentioned, we are uh, just on the verge of being able to transmit that information, their their advanced directives, their legal documents, to the Health Information Exchange. So that's why we had that uh, that discussion. That's why that was so important, and to make them available whenever and wherever they're needed. Right. One of the things I think that's very unique about Mind My Health is that it is outside. Many of us remember having to sign the HIPAA waiver when we go into a physician's office or to a hospital. This is something that the individual owns. And the other unique feature of it is that I can invite you, my daughter or my son, to be a partner with me in that. And then you have access to my information. So the important part of that is that then we're sharing that information and our kids or or our proxies know what we want rather than having to go hunt for it in that emergency, which is what happens now. So they, they actually know where it is. They've seen it. As we change it, they know we've changed it. And so all of this can happen outside of the HIPAA wall, but then be transmitted through the Health Information Exchange to wherever the person's receiving care. I'll just mention very quickly that there are a few legislative changes that will be necessary to make that vision happen. And those are some of the recommendations that have come out of this Institute of Medicine Task Force. So we will be talking to the General Assembly in the spring uh, as the new legislators who are elected in the in the upcoming election uh, are are available and, and we'll be saying, we want you to think about developing with us this new approach to uh, how advanced care planning can happen in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And that's crucial. I mean, it is foundational. 
to where we go from here, because I think you all would probably agree that in many ways we're in a crisis as it relates to this. We've done things the way we've done them. I mean, advanced directives and things like that. A lot of people don't do them and haven't done them, partly because it's cumbersome and it's hard to do. And then you're bumped up against a serious illness or something, and then you have to you either aren't able to express your wishes or you just don't have it or can't find it. And we're in the 21st century. You all know it. Through the legislative changes, you have an information infrastructure that's been authorized. You have an authority that's working with that. You've got this really good software solution that is a major communication vehicle between the person the family, the caregivers, and also the major healthcare or responding organizations that are in this network of care. And so I don't know who's going to be in the General Assembly next year, but this is a huge, not only responsibility, but a huge opportunity to change this game. And if we miss this opportunity to do it, it'll be our own fault. Because I know y'all put a whole lot of work into this. I think the the Serious Illness Coalition had, what, 60 people? 60 representatives and your our serious illness task force had 60 members. You've got this coalition that on the statewide level, all these major organizations have come together and they've looked at all this and they have really good recommendations. And simple things like you talk about, you know, not necessarily having to have two notaries to sign off on on this type of information, to streamline it, line it and make it easier, to be able to store the information electronically in such a way that all these entities can be able to access it in such a way that it is consumer driven, that it is consumer controlled, that the power is with the individual and the family and its relationship to this big healthcare system. And so I don't need to tell you, but I'm a huge proponent of what you all are doing. And I'm a huge proponent of what the task force has done and hopefully what the coalition will do. You've got it, Jeff. You're preaching our line. I know when, when we met earlier, you all did a demonstration. And like I said, it was a free account. You know, it was a it was a very user-friendly platform. It's so in, user-intuitive. You got a whole lot of questions that you answer within it. And you provide real good guidance in terms of people putting together the information. You don't tell them it's right or wrong, but whether or not it's in a format, that would be good. There's a way to store the information. And so I really like the look and the feel of it and what has been done so far. And it's a great foundation to build on. And and my hope is that um, that these kinds of efforts will take hold in ways that they help the system improve. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's all for the public good. Nobody's making any money on this. This is uh, funded by the Duke Endowment, funded by the state. So it's uh, it's it's a win-win. Yeah. And you got organ donation uh, in there, too, I guess. I, I remember seeing there was a relationship with the, with the group that does organ donation. Of course, that's one of the major, was it one of the major health care decisions we make as teenagers? Absolutely. Yeah. The first time we make an end-of-life decision and commit ourselves is when we get our driver's license and they say, do you want to be an organ donor? And you get the little heart on your driver's license and you've made an end of life decision, even though you may not have realized it. Yeah. And and we talk about through these podcasts, how we don't necessarily like to talk about death and dying as a society. When we met, I remember you saying something about, you know, from some of what y'all have learned, sometimes it's easier for people to talk about these kinds of decisions online or rather than in in person, which is kind of interesting, right? It is. It is. I think we listen better online because we can't interrupt. If you're the child who doesn't want to lose mom, 
you can look at what mom wants and consider it before you actually have to say, yeah, mom, I'll do what you want. So that emotionally, it's much easier for some people. And it brings the question up at a time that you can deal with it. What's the website for my mile? It's mindmyhealth.org. That's it. Very simple. I can remember that. (laughs) Okay. Well, we've covered a lot of ground so far. I'll just say we appreciate you with Guilford County asking these questions, being engaged. Uh, We're going to be talking to the EMS director here, I think, uh, sometime in in the not-too-distant future because, as Catherine said, EMS is a big issue as well, and they are probably ones that need to uh, most see what uh, the person's preferences are because uh, they they have to respond to emergencies. And sometimes people say, I don't want to be taken to the hospital. I'm, I'm happy here. So they need to understand what people's wishes are. Yeah. Jim uh, Albright has been the EMS director here maybe for uh, five or six years, but he's been with the department for like 32 years. And he was one of our first podcasts, and he talked about things like most documents, which I had no idea what a most document was. Mm-hmm. But it is really important that you can then share with your first responders. And part of the complication in that is that in these systems, you know, there really are important documents to have. Mm-hmm. The challenge is I don't walk around with it in my back pocket. And we need to be able to have systems in place where people can have the time, the effort, the way to plan these things that I don't need it in my back pocket, that we have a system in place where Guilford County EMS and Cone Health and all these organizations have a relationship to an information infrastructure that are able to access my wishes, even as we started out when I can't express it myself. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that'll be a good meeting uh, with Jim. I think the only other thing we haven't mentioned directly is that many times these advanced directives and these documents are put together in other venues besides healthcare. So attorneys, when they're doing estate planning and they're putting together all of your wills and trusts and those kinds of things, also do advanced care plans. And so right now, those can be very disconnected from the what's going on in your healthcare world. And that's another one of the places that we think a, a Mind My Health kind of an interaction allows you to take what you got in one place and locate it with all the other important healthcare documents that you have. And, and so there's a lot of interest outside of the healthcare system for knowing what those wishes are and for getting all of that paperwork if you will, in order and getting rid of the paper, which is the real opportunity here. Yep. Is to, to Get rid of the easy. bureaucracy, work toward more seamless integration. Absolutely. And have something that works. And I'll people. just say that yeah. uh, for all of the challenges that this pandemic has created, and it's been multitude and, and, and having a, about 200,000 people dying in the United States is unforgivable. But uh, the the silver lining that has come about is it has moved us to having these kinds of discussions on a more regular basis, being able to develop some technologies that can help us even further and, and moving them in a much quicker way like telehealth and developing how we can move these documents in a much more seamless manner. Yeah, I've been a huge proponent of fiber and, and broadband, high-speed Internet access for populations that urban and rural have a hard time getting that it's affordable. And I've always thought telehealth was a great idea. But because of this pandemic, 
I think we've made a, I believe, we, I hope we've made a fundamental shift in saying, you know, being able to have an information infrastructure and the technology infrastructure with equity for people who can afford it and those who not, who cannot are incredibly important. It's important for education. It's important for health. It is important for economy and all of that. And that's why I really appreciate the particular work y'all are doing is because in this niche, you all have been doing this, you know, you, you're not just coming lately to this. You've been working on it for years. And so I appreciate that. So, Jeff, the only other thing I thought about is we, the United States has been at this work since 1991. And when we look at that 35% number, it, we're moving very slowly since 1991 because it was really um, at, at, during, it was, there was some federal legislation at that point that was put into place um, that said hospitals have to ask you if you have an advanced directive. Yeah, 35% um, of people who are prepared right. versus those who are not. Right, yeah. And so, you know, we've been at this for a very long time. And, and, and if it if that's the pace that we're going, we're not going to be where we need to be for another 40 or 50 years. And we can't afford that. Right. So it's it's just really important that we seize this opportunity and realize that we have this chance to to make a big difference in this by doing the hard work of talking to each other and getting the laws changed. Catherine, I was looking at the, well, I don't normally look at the North Carolina Journal of Medicine. Uh, you know, it's not on my coffee table, but I uh, I was looking you up and I came across an article for the July, August 2020 uh, magazine for the North Carolina Journal mm -hmm. of Medicine. Can you talk about what uh, edition was dedicated to and talk about your article. So part of Mind My Health's grant was we wanted to make sure at the end of our work that we were talking about how to communicate in serious illness and advanced care planning. And so we were able, because of our work with the North Carolina Institute of Medicine Task Force, to dedicate an entire journal to serious illness. And the journal covers all the things that we've been talking about. It covers HIE. It covers what you do when you have a child with a serious illness. And that's not something we've talked about today. But if you're the parent of a child with a life-limiting illness, how you deal with that. It talks about health disparities. We talk about the impact of serious illness on the LGBTQ community. There's a wonderful article in there by Ames Simmons that speaks on that. So the whole journal was really talking about how important it is for us, as we said in our article, to lean into this, to lean into the, the work of serious illness and look for those solutions that will make a difference to these different populations, whether it's a child, whether it's someone that we expect um, has a, a, a short time to live, and how do we, we tend to all the things that make serious illness care better in North Carolina? And, and the journal's terrific. And you can get it online. So I would urge anybody to read it. It's full of personal accounts as well as important data. There are a lot of stories in there that people have told about their walk with serious illness. So good stuff in there. You yeah. can download it at ncium.org. The uh, Institute of Medicine also publishes the medical journal. Yeah. Well, thank you both for being good people. Thank you for the work you're doing with the Task Force, the Coalition, with 
Mind My Health, and as a part of the Green with AARP, and as a part of the Greensboro community, you're in Guilford County. You are home people. You know this is your home. So I definitely appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us about your work. MindMyHealth.org is the website. I'm going to plug Catherine's Twitter page, and she has great information on there. I look. I, I went through and I just started scrolling. And I'm like. You know, you you connect to a whole lot of people when you share stuff. And that's Catherine, C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Sevier, S-E-V-I-E-R. So you have now been plugged on Twitter. Great. (laughs) I hope so, because I will be reminding people, vote and get flu shots. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I'll be working on that. I know uh, Carly and I really appreciate you being here. We do, we do. Sharing with us. So, Happy uh, to do it. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining Good Grief. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Good Grief Podcast. We want your feedback. You can visit our website at www.guilforddeeds.com. You can also email us at endoflife at guilfordcountync.gov or find us on Twitter with the handle at Guilford underscore R-O-D. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and until next time, take care.